Stay hungry, stay foolish. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder will soon be the most frequently diagnosed chronic condition among children surpassing asthma. Yet your research shows that ADHD can't be that prevalent. ADHD, a problem once thought to affect a small percentage of children, has exploded into one of the most misdiagnosed psychiatric conditions. Now doctors and Big Pharma are targeting children and adults worldwide to get the diagnosis and take medications that will, they say, transform their lives. Today's show will look behind the scenes to tell the full story of this billion dollar industry. There's the father of ADHD, Dr. Keith Connors, who spent 50 years promoting the disorder in the US and pills like Ritalin before realizing just what he had wrought. A troubled young girl and a studious teenage boy who get entangled in the ADHD machine and are prescribed medications that lead to serious problems, and the pharmaceutical industry that promoted the disorder and continues to earn billions from the rampant mishandling of ADHD. We are joined today by author of ADHD Nation, Pulitzer Prize nominated, Alan Schwartz. Welcome to the show. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's fantastic to have you on the show. This book, I was telling you off air, is like an amazing movie script because it, it looks neutrally. And I, I, I really, really struck me how unbiased it is because you look at every angle of the story. You use critical thinking to its maximum to make sure that every angle is covered. But I'd love to jump into it and it'd be great to understand a little bit about you because you have a history of exposés in bringing things to the spotlight that have been covered. Well, thanks. I think that, you know, my interest in this area derived from the investigation that I did at the New York Times, the five years I spent sort of exposing the seriousness of concussions and similar head injuries among athletes uh, and the military to a certain extent. But whether it's American football players, whether it's what you guys call football, whether it's rugby players who I know uh, have had a lot of problems, I did an awful lot of work on brain injuries and things that affect the brain. When I was done with that, I was compelled by the issue of the abuse uh, by high school students of stimulants, which are prescribed for ADHD, whether it's Adderall or Ritalin or Concerta medications like that, Vyvanse, Focalin, uh, many of which are being exported into your country. And I was struck by the similarities uh, of how doctors who should know better mishandling things, the industry that makes so much money off of certain activities, covering up what are obvious dangers to children. Now, one thing I want to make extraordinarily clear, and I will probably do it many times during this broadcast, is I do not argue that ADHD does not exist. Obviously, severe inattention, severe hyperactivity or impulsivity among children and to a certain extent in adults exists. And we choose to define it through medi uh, medical terms for, for lots of reasons. But to deny that these uh, behaviors cause a lot of trouble and hurt kids would be foolish and, and in fact cruel. And I don't think we should cast the medications as the devil's work or inherently bad. I think what we need to do is accept that the diagnosis exists, that these medications can and often do a very nice job 
in controlling the behaviors and allowing a child to have a better education, better home life, things like that. All that I demand is that the medical establishment and to a lesser extent, perhaps teachers and parents follow the rules that they actually use the proper diagnostic criteria to make the diagnosis and to responsibly rather than simply reflexively prescribe the medication. Because here in the United States, it's obviously not as bad uh, across the pond, but here in the United States, it is stated in the actual DSM, okay, which is the United States' sort of handbook for psychiatry, written by all the experts after decades of deliberation and arguments over you know, who has ADHD, what it is, what it isn't. They flatly state that ADHD is found in approximately 5% of school-aged children. Fine. If that's what the experts say, we're going to go with that. The problem is, is that we are diagnosing 15% of children, three times what the experts, so-called experts, claim is appropriate. Right now, 20% of American boys get diagnosed with ADHD by the time they turn 18. In some southern states, like Mississippi, Arkansas, some of those other ones down there, it's 30% of boys get diagnosed. This is, on its face, preposterous, clearly suboptimal, it can hurt kids. It's completely inappropriate. And yet no one seems to want to do anything about it. And I don't understand why, but that's what the book, ADHD Nation, is about. It's about how we got here, how the forces over 50 years have led us to a situation. We tell one out of seven kids, you have a serious lifelong brain disorder. And my feeling is, is that if you're going to tell a child that they have a lifelong serious brain disorder, you better damn well be right. Right now, we're not even right half the time. And tell me another serious condition in medicine where we accept more than 50% false positives. I mean, it's, it's preposterous. And yet no one seems to want to do anything about it. This is one of the reasons I reached out to you, because Alan, I felt you were like the kid in the emperor's new clothes who's going the emperor's naked and that there's not enough people doing that this is a crisis and we know it is but also there's so many social conditioning aspects of it so there's parents putting pressure on children there's parents working so hard that they want their children just to be quiet and they're willing to accept a really quick diagnosis in some cases as you say done in 20 minutes while a proper diagnosis should take many, many visits, many aspects of the child's psychology, many interviews with different players in the child's life into the account before a diagnosis is ever made. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we've just taken so many shortcuts. As I said before, I'm not saying that, you know, we should stop diagnosing children with ADHD. There are a lot of times when that is, at least as we've defined it, a perfectly reasonable and even prudent course. But we are casting such a wide net, 
telling so many kids, there's frankly, I mean, who are we kidding? Something wrong with you. There's something wrong with your brain. We're telling millions of kids here in the United States that there's something wrong with your brain when there isn't, or they have a different type of problem for which stimulant medications are not the appropriate antidote. I mean, ADHD behaviors, inattention, hyperactivity, impulsivity, can derive from a lot of things other than what we call ADHD. They can derive from anxiety, from trauma, bad diet, lack of exercise, all sorts of things, sleep disorders. All sorts of things can bring about the behaviors that we associate with ADHD. But that doesn't mean it is ADHD. All that coughs is not bronchitis, and all that is inventive is not ADHD. And we're doing a really crummy job of figuring out which kids truly fit the paradigm and are as entitled to medical assistance as anybody else and who doesn't. Because when you tell a child that they have what is called a psychiatric disorder, whether we like it or not, that changes the child's personal narrative. They think something about themselves. And sometimes we don't have a choice. Hey, sometimes, look, this is the situation we're in, and let's make the best of it. Let's not stigmatize it. You know, let's treat it as, as anything worthy of the same respect as anything else. But the problem is, is right now we're shooting so scattershot that we're not only diagnosing a lot of kids who shouldn't be getting diagnosed, but we're diluting respect for the disorder by diagnosing willy-nilly, and no one really knows what ADHD is anymore. And so the people who really have it and are properly handled don't get the respect that they probably should. Once there's poison in the well, everybody gets poisoned. Like it's, it's not just picking out the right people. Everybody's affected by it. But one of the things that really dawned on me, and I told you off air, I felt like a bit of a mug in that when you see all the pieces of the jigsaw that you lay out and do so well, and you see how you build the story, you go, oh my God, how much we've been manipulated here. And also how businesses actually sell their products. So first of all, they started off with where they could, the five to six to seven year old children, mainly boys. Then they decide, you know what, actually we're saturating that market a bit once there was so many players in the, in the pot. And then they go and go, actually, you know what? It also affects adults. And then adults get in the game. And then horrifically, they're down now to children, to toddlers getting diagnosed and medicated. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think that, again, we need to strike the proper balance. And, you know, I don't think it's reasonable to suggest only kids from 7 to 12, which was the original sort of thought back in the 60s and 70s. And when the disorder was not called ADHD yet, it was actually called minimal brain dysfunction, but was sort of rebranded as ADHD uh, as attention deficit disorder in 1980. You know, I don't think it's reasonable to think, well, it's only confined to ages 7 to 12. It's a behavioral spectrum disorder. I mean, things are a little murky. That doesn't mean it's not real, but it's just very murky to sort of figure out where is this child or person on the spectrum. I don't think it's reasonable to just say, well, teenagers can't have it or adults can't have it. 
I think, you know, we need to be open to the possibility that these people still do fit the paradigm. But again, what I demand is that we do it properly. If you're going to tell us the rules, psychiatric establishment, then you are to follow them to the best extent human beings can. Obviously, it's not going to be perfect, and, and you know we can't expect that. But I still think that diagnosing millions of kids with a psychiatric disorder that they do not have is a pretty dangerous thing, and we shouldn't be doing it. The kids deserve better, and it's our fault. It's the grown-up's fault. We can look at all sorts of forces, and in, in fact, I'm not even a big pharma bashing type of guy. They've done some terrible things in marketing, not only their stimulant medications, but also the disorder itself, getting people to think their kids have ADHD when they don't, and completely grotesquifying what the disorder actually is. Doctors are supposed to know better. Doctors are not supposed to be so swayed by advertising that they start drugging kids improperly. I mean, the doctors are supposed to know far better what they're doing and resist the forces that might otherwise affect the public. So I'm far more putting the responsibility in the laps of the medical establishment and to a certain extent, the research medical establishment, clinical and research. Big Pharma, I think, comes perhaps next because Big Pharma can't prescribe they can say that their products are great and that ADHD is this, that, and the other thing, but they don't have a prescription pad. The stopgap is supposed to be the medical provider who decides whether this child or adult, but this child fits the paradigm and should get this medication. And too often, doctors are abdicating their responsibility to be far more prudent far more discerning, and for that matter, far more accurate. There's so much in that, Alan. I'd love to talk about a couple of things there because one of them was the personal narrative of a child, but it's also the narrative then that becomes the parents and almost the confirmation bias that, oh yeah, I can see the ADHD acting up there. And then confirming to the child or suggesting to the child that they're not normal, while actually them not being normal when they don't have the ADHD I'm saying here, when they have a gift of thinking differently, that gift then gets suppressed. And that for me is a huge tragedy that could come out from all of this. Yeah, I, I, I think it's hard to figure out how many kids have what negative reaction, what the cost truly is. I mean, hey, who are we kidding? You know, it doesn't necessarily traumatize the kid forever to receive a diagnosis incorrectly. I would even argue that a false positive is less of a problem than a false negative. I think it's worse for a severely ADHD kid to not get treatment than for a kid who doesn't have ADHD to get treatment. I think in general, it's tough to argue otherwise. Let's look at building the story here because you mentioned about the actual responsibility being on those with the prescription pad. But let's look at how they are being influenced because I thought this was where we can actually put ourselves under the microscope. And you say this, this is not a they story. This is a we story. It's about us as a society and how we all have to act to make this change because it will take a long time to unravel the mess that it is in now. But one of the things is how doctors 
are influenced. And it, one of them is by studies who happen to just be funded by the pharma companies. Yeah. I mean, look, here in the United States, certainly, but almost all medical research is funded by industry. And a lot of great things have come out of that. I mean, I think it's pretty disingenuous to say that, you know, big pharma is entirely or even substantially evil. I mean, their medications have done wonderful things for an awful lot of people. My brother's alive because of chemotherapy. I mean, you know, come on. So, uh, you know, I think we have to be careful. But specifically in the ADHD world, they seized upon the murkiness of the disorder, the fact that it's defined as, you know, one of the official uh, symptoms is, you know, difficulty waiting turn and difficulty sitting still, which obviously describes virtually all children, you know, at certain times. Uh, and so what pharma would do is they would create sort of caricatures of children saying, is your, you know, basically to parents or to, to, to doctors, you know, if you're, if this child is, you know, out of control, give him Ritalin and everything will be fine. Um, and, but then specifically, as you said, with respect to the researchers, cause I got a little off topic there, researchers who are paid, you know, beyond uh, or basically millions of dollars to, to basically create studies that show how wonderful the drugs are and how uh, their side effects are negligible essentially. And, I think it's hard to dispute that the that that yeah the the medications can do good. There's no question, and you know they don't immediately make all kids go psychotic. And it's unfair to to suggest that. But the problem is, is that when you're paid a lot to create science that makes your benefactors happy and and, and makes them want to continue giving you money, you really lose your way. And I think there's no excuse for that, okay? There are researchers up at Harvard and really all over the country, but the primary ones uh, at Harvard who just accepted millions and millions of dollars from Big Pharma to create studies that, you know, some of them were so disingenuous. And so many of the researchers' statements and handling of issues was so off proper medical course that... It, it bastardized and, as I said before, grotesquified what ADHD truly is. And it, it poisoned the waters in that, you know, there are all these, you know, peer-reviewed published studies by Harvard researchers. And you hear that and you're like, ooh, okay, you know, it must be pretty, pretty good stuff. Well, sometimes it's not. And I certainly don't have to go any further than, you know, the study in Lancet with the uh, you know, the guy who, who basically made up the data connecting vaccinations to autism. You know, we have to be really careful to not over, uh, overtrust this so-called research. I, I think in this day and age, uh, we need a far more discerning eye uh, to, to parse out what is really fair and, and thought out and what might be driven by agenda. Um, it's never a zero percent. It's never a hundred percent. It's just we have to do far better. And I think ADHD is one of the prime examples uh, where industry has just completely hijacked medicine. Another Lego brick in this in this house that's been built is the scale. So the Connors scale. And the, you talked about 
Keith Connors, essentially the father of the Connors scale, the creator of the Connors scale, and we'll talk about that in a second. But he received a narrative from to speak at one of the conferences, and he went against the narrative. And this, there's a Voltaire quote that jumped to my mind, and it's, to learn who rules over you, simply find out who you're not allowed to criticize. And when he went off script, he was no longer able to speak at any of those conferences anymore. Yeah, I mean, Keith Connors is arguably the main character of the book. He was, in the early 1960s, a very young research psychologist at Johns Hopkins and was interested in what was then called minimal brain dysfunction or really minimal brain damage, hyperactivity. And this was severe behavioral problems, things that really would often be well beyond what we call ADHD today, whether it would be oppositional defiant disorder or even, you know, psychosis, mania, whatever, bipolar disorder specifically. Um, But nonetheless, he conducted the first randomized controlled trial of what we call Ritalin in children in children essentially with ADHD, severe ADHD. And, you know, it obviously, it worked. It, it, it calmed down the children. It made them able to concentrate more, uh, made their education uh, more smooth. I mean, hey, who wouldn't want that? My God. I mean, these are kids who would, as Keith would tell me, he, you know, would just be diagnosed with rotten little kid syndrome. And here we had a situation where they could really be helped. And so this became a passion of his, not surprisingly. And in order to make sure that the doctors looked for the right things and considered the right possibilities and followed the right rules for making the diagnosis and, you know, oftentimes prescribing medication, throughout the 1960s, he developed a kind of questionnaire, if you will, where about 65, I think, different behaviors, things associated with inattention or hyperactivity, you know, climbs recklessly. And you rate them from zero to three, zero being never, never, and three being, you know, very often or whatever it may be. And the idea was to help crystallize or bring, bring into some focus what the child's behaviors truly were and what patterns they may be uh, forming to help make the proper diagnosis. This was all done in good faith. And his scale, called the Connors scale, not surprisingly, and there was one for parents and one for teachers, because of course the teachers know the behavior of the child in a way that frankly the parents don't. And uh, so, and he ended up, uh, you know, creating this effectively checklist. and you know, sending it to doctors across the country and whoever wanted it as this, you know, idea of minimal brain dysfunction, of hyperactivity, of, of um, impulsivity and inattention started taking hold. And it wasn't until the mid 80s, I think, that the scale started being sold and marketed as, again, hopefully a responsible way to make this diagnosis. The problem is that too many health providers, an astounding number of health providers, would merely use the checklist as a score, or the scale as a scorecard, and add up the ones and twos and threes. And if the child had, you know, a total of 72, 
well, then whoop, hey, there's ADHD and prescribe. And the, the scale just became something it was never designed to do. Uh, it did a lot of harm in misdiagnosis. Did a lot of harm in good diagnosis, I'm sure, too. But, you know, the idea was for it to not be 50-50. And, you know, ultimately, doctors relied upon it in a completely inappropriate way. And his name is forever associated with it. It's still sold as the Connors scale. And it's not the scale's fault that people misuse it. But he became quite regretful, not regretful, but, but had very mixed feelings uh, about sort of unleashing this thing that had done more harm than he ever thought could. I struck a match and I didn't know how much Tinder was around. You know, the unintended consequence of a good gesture gone wrong. But it's funny, you mentioned the scale and what's incredible is the scale is to be used in conjunction with proper interviews of, of the carers of the child, of the people in the child's lives, etc. But that scale now has gone down to as little as six questions. Yep, it used to be about 65 to try to give a really wide uh, spectrum of behaviors and a real trying to sort of, like I said, get into focus what the child uh, child's behaviors truly were, you know, from where they may derive. And we've now gotten to the point where it's, it's really for adults, uh, but nonetheless, the, the descendant of the Connor scale is now six questions, something even four questions. I've asked Alan, I asked a few people just randomly asked some people, I said, can I ask you a few questions here? You have to write on scale zero to three. Are you this? And I'll give you an example. So one of the questions from the new shorter survey is how often do you have problems? Remember appointments and obligations. How often do you fidget or squirm with your hands or your feet when you have to sit down for a long time? Every person I asked, and it was a mixed, it was a purposely a mixed bag of people were diagnosed positive according to the scale. We've covered on the show before attention and focus, and those shows get really high listens to those shows. And the interesting thing is we're all struggling with this because there's so much data in the world, there's so much choice in the world that we're actually struggling anyway. And it feels more and more that, especially with the adult ADHD diagnosis, it's like there's a new market there and they're going after that market. Oh, there's no question. And, you know, it's a shame because some adults, I'm sure, really do have what we call ADHD. And, you know, their situation is being completely um, contorted uh, by the fact that, you know, everybody has ADHD type behaviors from time to time, you know, and you know, the more general and not specific we make the criteria you know, the wider swath of people are going to think they have the disorder. I remember uh, at the New York Times, we did, um, we, we administered, if you will, that's the six question survey um, to adults. Uh, we did it the proper way. It was not, you know, it was a random phone survey. It, it you know, it was done properly. It wasn't just some web app. And the, the the survey that, uh, you know, has the, the scoring paradigm, you know, six questions from zero to three, blah, blah, blah. I remember that I think it was 49% of respondents, the official scoring thing said either they probably did have the disorder or or might or, or 
you know, are, are at risk or, or something like that. And I mean, my God, it, it, that's just driving people to the doctor thinking they might have a disorder. Now, of course, they hedge it. They say might. Oh, well, we only said might. But they know full well uh, what's going to happen. And this the stuff where, you know, the, the paring down of the diagnosis criteria or mechanism from 18 questions down to six, down to four. The primary person behind this is an NYU researcher who gets paid from all, by almost every uh, pharmaceutical company to do this work. Well, do you really think that that's going to result in stricter diagnostic procedures? I mean, come on. And I just wish people would take a look at this stuff and go, hey, wait a minute. You know, this is, this is, this is getting out of control. I know you figured out some way to be able to claim that it's scientifically, you know, valid and all that. But, but common sense shows that this is just not, we are on the wrong track here. And, you know, these so-called scientists don't like to be called by, you know, called out by people who are non-scientists. I mean, I got asked so many times, are you a scientist? You know, how can you be questioning what we do? And I'm like, well, I do have a mathematics degree from an Ivy League school. You know, that, there's something there. Thank you very much. But, um, you know, and I did, and you, and, and if your child gets treated properly for a concussion, you can probably thank me. Um, but, you know, I, they're so dismissive of any sort of outside opinion. I mean, I think that they think that if, you know, P is less than 0.05, then they're right and everybody else is wrong. And thank you very much. And it's far more complicated than that. And, you know, the use of common sense is frankly dismissed. And of course, sometimes, you know, what we think of as common sense is wrong. I mean, duh, I know that, but, but it's right often enough that we need to recognize that sometimes it really is right. And, you know, it's just not appropriate for these scales and these questionnaires to be you know, planted all over the place under the guise of medicine when it's marketing. It is. It's marketing. And okay, fine. Industry markets. I get it. By law, Shire is required to try to maximize profits for its shareholders within the bounds of the law. They're not allowed to break the law, but they are required to market, basically. But the doctors are not required to do it for them, and the doctors are not certainly required or, or supposedly encouraged to do their bidding and to just get sucked down that vortex. The doctors are supposed to know better, period. If you think about the Hippocratic Oath, I mean, your whole job is to actually do what's best for the human at the at the center of the story. And I thought it was really interesting when you're talking about marketing because the other way they've reached us and almost it's almost like a numbers game where if there's enough people diagnosed, then there's more people to be medicated. And if you make the disorder okay and you make it a hero disorder, and then you cr you you get some influencers. And here I'm talking about, you know, lauding people like Michael Phelps or the Maroon 5 lead singer and bringing them, and, and you mentioned Ty Pennington, and bringing these people who are 
making it a celebrity disorder, then more people are willing to step forward and then there's going to be much more diagnoses. Well, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree. I don't necessarily agree with that. Okay. I, I do think that there are lots of different diseases, if you will, um, or conditions, uh, where famous people come along and tell patients and often kids, Hey, I overcame it too. And I overcame it and you can too. Uh, you know, whether it's an athlete with diabetes who, you know, in a, in a television commercial says, Hey, I overcame this with proper treatment and you know, you can too. I mean, that's a wonderful message, for example, for a child. And if a child has been properly diagnosed with ADHD and assuming for the moment that Michael Phelps was as well, then it's, it's totally appropriate to have that voice reassure the child that, hey, you're not alone. That's, I mean, that's a great thing. It should be done. But it shouldn't be done irresponsibly. It shouldn't be done where, you, you know, go to your doctor because, you know, if, you know, because you can be like me. Now, that's, that's a little different. And, you know, the ADHD is a different type of diagnosis because there is no objective test for it. There is no blood test. There's no magic x-ray where a doctor can say, okay, there it is. You have diabetes or you have, you know, tuberculosis or whatever it may be. You have a situation where the patient can really be swayed into thinking they have it. And then you have it, you know, and they have the ability to convince the doctor, uh, either through, you know, good or ill, um, that they have it as well. And so I think you need to be far more careful in what can sort of morph from reassurance to the patient uh, into encouraging the patient to think they have the disorder. That's far different and something that ADHD, you know, wh one thing is you don't see a lot of commercials where famous people say, Hey, I'm bipolar, you know, so, you know, you may be too. And, and, and you know, we, we hope that things work. I don't know. I mean, I'm not making <laughs> I got you. you know, but it's not like, hey, you might have diabetes too. Go to your doctor and ask. Yeah. I'm glad you clarified that for me because I'll tell you why I asked that question. I felt like a bit of a mug because I have fallen for, I've, I've written articles on dyslexia as a gift, for example, which I do believe it is because thinking different in this world is actually a gift. And then I felt a little bit manipulated myself in that a lot of the websites, like Attitude, for example, the CHADD, website will say here's reasons why adhd is great and i felt a little bit that that actually can play though into the overdiagnosis of of the adhd in the world because people start saying actually it's okay by society because of that then there's way more people going for diagnosis and then there's way more people getting medicated and if that's if that is used in a way that is to get more diagnosis over the line or more medication sold that's what I mean is the bad part of it. Saying that it's something that's wonderful 
when the symptoms are shared by so many people, it encourages the internalizing of the diagnosis. And it, it absolutely, I mean, it's all fine and dandy to say, but be very careful. You know, I, I get it. And I guess that's a good thing. But nonetheless, to, to cast this as something that you want is so, I mean, okay, fine, maybe it is. But then you have the other end of the spectrum that says it's the scourge of society and that people are dying because of it, dying in, plane, in uh, car crashes and whatnot. It impedes your education. It impedes your um your job growth, it impedes your marriage, it leads to car crashes, all these terrible things, and I get it. But I think it's a little hard when it's being marketed, frankly, as this absolutely terrible thing you wouldn't want for anybody on one end, and a really great thing that you want to get diagnosed with on the other. Yeah. And there, therein lies that dilemma of actually promoting it as as a as a good thing because you're kind of going well for the people who actually have it, you can turn it to your advantage. Every disadvantage can be an advantage if you frame it that way. But if it is so debilitating that you have to take medication, then you're not going to go, oh yeah, I, I thumbs up, buddy. Thanks for looking out for me and making it into a superhero disease. So, Alan, we've we've talked about Keith Connors. You have two other characters in the book, which is Jameson and Kristen. They tell a different story, and it's like this burgeoning, well, it's not a burgeoning crisis, it's a crisis, which is the pressure society and the pressure parents put on their children to perform because of their worry that they'll get college grades and they get the right education to get the right job. Because of that, so many kids are getting diagnosed and, and faking the Connors test and even the shorter test to get diagnosed in order to get amphetamines that will help them study and focus better. Yeah. I mean, amphetamine has been known for a very long time, ever since it really started getting marketed in 1935, uh, as something that can help you focus, that can reduce your impression of distraction. It can increase what feels like motivation and allow you to sort of hunker down and get stuff done that you might not otherwise get done. I mean, there was an article in Time magazine in 1937 about college students taking what was then called Benzedrine in order to study harder. I mean, this is this is something that's been known for a very long time. Certainly uh, airline, I mean, not airline, uh, Air Force pilots and whatnot in the Second World War in Britain and elsewhere. I mean, I, I know that in the wonderful book On Speed by Nicholas Rasmussen, there's a great section about Churchill. And I don't remember it, but everyone should get that book and, and look it up because it's a great little section. Um, but the point is, is that this stuff does have that effect on many people, not all. Some people get jittery. Some people don't like it, and that's fine. But on a lot with a lot of people, it gives them the feeling of being more productive and more focused. And, well, who wouldn't want that? Needless to say, I mean, I would want it, certainly. I've never done it, but I would. I'm addicted to coffee, which is also a stimulant. Now, coffee is not nearly as addictive uh, and possibly dangerous as, you know, these uh, these medications. <laughs> I, I told you, man, a doctor 
a leading expert in ADHD in children told me coffee is worse than the medication that these children are on to make me well, feel better. That person should lose his or her license. That is one of the most dangerous things you could ever share with anybody because you don't go psychotic on coffee. Okay. You don't get so addicted that you start, you know, taking Valium and, and alcohol, you know, and alcohol in order to come down. Now, obviously there are some horror stories, I'm sure, but you know, the risks of addiction and misuse for, um, stimulant ADHD medications is orders of magnitude higher than that of coffee. And if that, if that person's listening, you should be ashamed of yourself. And if you don't agree, then you call me up and we'll debate on live television because it is an incredibly dangerous message. Now, that being said, back to college. So, you know, kids who are under tremendous pressure to, you know, read 200 pages a night, crank out papers, concentrate on math problems that I wouldn't wish on anybody who wouldn't want to focus harder uh, and get get stuff done more? Uh, I mean, housewives in the 1940s were getting addicted on this stuff. And it's not surprising that people want to do it, particularly in this high-speed, distractible world. So that doesn't mean the medications are evil, and it doesn't mean that people properly diagnosed with ADHD should not have the option of using them. I mean, God bless you. But we do have to recognize that as opposed to almost every other medicine out there, I mean, you don't have people wanting to get chemotherapy. You don't have people wanting to give themselves insulin. Frankly, the only uh, drugs that you can compare this really to are the painkillers, uh, oxycodone, oxycodone uh, opioids like that, which I think it's hard to argue have been far worse uh, over the past 10 years. They're, they're, they are more dangerous. It would be disingenuous to suggest otherwise. And the benzodiazepines like Valium, Ambien, and things like that. Uh, you know, those are drugs that people do seek. And so you have to strike a very careful balance of distinguishing the people who really do have the disorder and the people who want you to think they have it in order to get the medications that they either can take themselves, give to others, or sell to others. It's very difficult. And God knows it's a hard thing for doctors to do. It is not easy, and they ain't going to be perfect. They're going to make mistakes. But I don't think they're trying very hard to not make those mistakes. And they have to tighten up their processes far, far more. And, uh, you know, it won't ever be perfect, but it could be a heck of a lot better than it is now. I mean, people right now, students, and adults for that matter, but students know they can just go to a doctor. They know who they can go to to get an Adderall prescription in 15 minutes. They know, I mean, everyone knows the doctors who will just hand it out willy-nilly because they're not paying attention. I mean, it's no secret. So why aren't we doing anything about this? Well, because the ADHD lobby, you know, feels like it's disrespecting the disorder and it does, you know, oh, well, this abuse doesn't happen. I mean, people say that. It's, it's, it's just awful. I, I don't under, sometimes I don't understand why people can be so obtuse. It really is, man. It's, 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 it's one of the reasons I reached out to you because one is because this 
book is is written from that neutral perspective and it's a great example of that i think and the other one is it's taking on a, a big subject that seems to not be taken on and also i do fear that you know it's it's a major issue in the us right now and i've seen statements by some of the leading some of the leaders of some of the big pharma companies saying they need to educate europe for example because europe is resisting it and therefore they need to be educated and to, so in order to medicate Europe a little bit more and but Europe's approach has been quite resistant to it because they're looking, they're only medicating in the really worst cases, but they first go to cognitive therapy and alternative therapies like psychiatric therapies before they go to medication. Well, and, and look, let's face it. Sometimes it, it is pr- probably prudent to go straight to medication or it certainly should be considered because a case could be so severe that like, holy cow, we got to, you know, because cognitive therapy, psychiatric therapy could take a lot of time. It's also very expensive, let's face it. And so that immediate response and, and treatment can can be, I guess, one would call appropriate. Uh, and I do think that Europe needs to just be careful that they don't simply resist the concept of ADHD as some American invention that, you know, that doesn't exist or is, you you know, shouldn't, should, should be ignored, um, as sort of hocus pocus. I, I think that if you're too resistant to the concept of ADHD, kids will be hurt. Okay. I think all I ask, and as I said, is demand and demand is that the rules be followed and that people behave appropriately or certainly within the range of appropriateness I, i'm pretty sure we all would agree on well, interestingly europe uses a different slightly different definition of adhd uh, it uses the icm definition which is more strict uh, than the american definition and so leads to fewer diagnoses um, but certainly the, the wave of marketing uh, that took place in the united states Let's remember that the United States is one of only two uh, developed nations that allows the direct-to-consumer advertising of control, what are called controlled substances, opioids, uh, ADHD medications, sleeping medications, things like anti-anxiety medications. Um, you know, New Zealand, interestingly, is the other one, but there's all sorts of reasons why it isn't a problem there. Um, you know, Europe... Europe, you can't do that. Now, there are ads for doctors that you wouldn't believe. I have an ad from a doctor, uh, an uh, ad for a doctor from Germany where they have a kid uh, who's about to saw his leg off. <laughs> I read that one. If you don't give him medication. There's one uh, from, I think it was Portugal, you know, where a kid is saying, I used to be a bad boy. Now I'm a good boy because my doctor gave me Concerta. I mean, literally, that's what it says. I mean, it's just sick. It's absolutely sick. And we have to find the right balance of accepting and respecting the construct of ADHD and the benefits that medications can, be, can provide when appropriate. And the, the, the complete grotesquification of what the disorder is and, and and when it should be diagnosed. I don't understand why that's so much to ask. And apparently it is. 
because the the factions only grow more um, distant and contentious every year. I guess I naively thought that my book could help each side learn something about the other and be like, hmm, okay, I I, I see what they're saying. Um, but no, um, people use my book as a sword, not a mirror. Very upsetting. And it is a mirror, and it's a brilliant read, and I really highly recommend as well the Netflix documentary that you're in, which is Take Your Pills, which is where I discovered the book in, in the first case. And that really delves into the issue of amphetamine abuse in colleges all through America. But also it looks it puts a mirror on society to look at why that's happening, parental pressure, pressure to perform in exams, etc. And that whole mess that is burgeoning and has built up in the world. Alan, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, and thank you so much for your, your generous time. I appreciate it greatly. Where can people find out a little bit more about Alan? Because I know you speak internationally on the NFL concussions, on many, many different topics, and exposés that you've put massive research into. You can go to my website, uh, which is alanschwartz.net. Uh, there is, it's A-L-A-N and then Schwartz without a T. I used to have alanschwartz.com, but it got poached by someone over in Asia, which is very upsetting. Very popular name in Asia, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's, so, yeah, I mean, I do speak all over, you know, I was I spoke at Oxford a couple of years ago, for example, uh, about Adderall abuse and about ADHD and the future of it uh, as well. And mathematics and journalism, the stuff that I really enjoy. So, um, yeah, if anyone uh, wants me to come across the pond, I, I love doing it. Alan Schwartz, Pulitzer Prize nominated author of ADHD Nation. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Anytime. 